Feliz sábado. Glad to see you all here today. It's a beautiful day, even though it's cold. <laughs> but it's a sunny and shiny day. Uh, today, I want to thank the Pathfinder Club because they won. <laughs> and because they won, Pastor has to be with them over there, so I had to be here covering Pastor. So that's a blessing for me. But also, I want to uh, congratulate someone special here, which is uh, Lisa Bad. Why Lisa? Because she's been uh, named the coordinate, the uh, prayer ministry coordinator at the general at the conference, at the Wisconsin conference. So now we have somebody from our family who can also be praying for all of us. So that's a blessing. We don't only have the prayer minister here, which is awesome too, but we now have one people at a high level that can help us with prayers. Today's message, uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, three angels' message, but specifically about the first message, or the first, uh, the message of the first angel. Something we need to understand is that our Seventh-day Adventist church has a unique, it's unique in many ways. Not because we want to make it unique, like, oh, we're going to dress, that we want to talk this way, that we want to walk this way. No. It's because we follow the Bible teaching. Whole. We don't accept like one-fourth of the Bible, one-half of the Bible, one-third. We accept the whole Bible as a teaching. That's why our church's name, or the people of our church's name, are the people of the Sola Escriptura. What does that mean? It means that the scripture alone, that we posit or postulate that the Bible as the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice. Sometimes we also get the message across and people say, hey, but you also follow Ellen White. That doesn't make you sole scriptura. But what happened is that we haven't understood the call and ministry of Ellen White. And if you read the 20th belief of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you will find that not any or not one belief is based on any book or writings of Ellen White. It's on the scripture alone. Now, today we're not going to talk about Ellen White. It's about the message in Revelation 14. And you might wonder, why no other religion denomination is preaching about this? Why no other churches preach about prophecy? Why are, there, are these messages so important for us today and for the future? So in order to do that, we're going to go to the Bible. And before we open our Bible, I want you to bow our head and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the blessings. We thank you for bringing us here, for keeping us, in, some of us in our homes, to worship you and praise you, Father. And we ask you this moment, your blessing of the Holy Spirit, that everything we say, that everything we read, comes from you, Father. And the Holy Spirit lead us and touch our hearts. We ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so... 
Today's message, I'm going to divide it in three parts. The first part is going to be about the background before the first message. Then we're going to talk about the first message. And then we're going to talk about why is that message important. So let's talk about a little bit of the background. What is the background for this message? In order to come here, we need to just go over a lot of prophecies, but we're not going to go into deep prophecy because we're going to spend the whole day or two days. But if you read the book of Daniel, you will find that on, on chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, he saw a big statue with the different materials, gold, silver, uh, and all the, I forgot the name, but all the names. And those representing kingdoms. But then you keep seeing the same structure on Daniel 7. But in Daniel 7, it talks about four beasts. A lion, a, a bear, a leopard, and then a beast with no description. And then when you go to Daniel 8, now it just focuses on two beasts. A ram and a goat. But then it gives you even more information about a little horn. And it talks about that little horn and how that little horn breaks three other horns because that beast has four. I mean, has ten. So he breaks three of those. And it also talks about a prophecy about 2,300 days. So when we start studying these prophecies, we start to understand that there is a timeline. And somehow, God is leading our minds that this time has their name numbers. So we see, because of the prophecies, when the kingdom rises, when the kingdom falls, and what's going to happen later. So when we keep those times in our mind, then we start following a prophecy. So it's in, during these times when God's people faces long uh, persecution. Why? Because when we read about it, when uh, Daniel received the prophecy of the 2300 days, then he received some other prophecies about timing. 70 days decided for your king, uh, I mean, for your people. But on, among all of this time, there is also a prophecy that talks about 1,260 days, which are years, or in Revelation 13, talks about 42 months, or also in Daniel, talks about uh, time, times, and half a time, which is the same time. And what, what is this talking about? Is that there is going to be this little horn persecuting God's people. Now, <clears throat> and this is when this persecution comes according to the Bible. Now, during those times, the truth was changed or mutilated by imposing traditions and doctrines which were not biblical, like Jesus' crucifixion. Why? Because they performed the Jesus' crucifixion in every Mass. So if they have four Masses every day, on, the four day, on that same day, four times they crucified Jesus. And we know that the Bible said that he was crucified only once. 
Also, the confessing and later forgiveness of sins by a human priest and many other more false doctrines that they found more fundamentals on traditions than on Bible. So something happened on October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther King posted his 95 thesis against papal indulgence on the atonement of sins through monetary payments on the door of the church of Wittenberg, Germany. But even though when we start seeing a little bit of sparks of light, the power of Martin Luther King wasn't big enough. It was only one man. Then he passed, and the message was a little bit lost. So little awakening starts, but it still doesn't have the power to reach the whole world. So that timeline takes us to the year of 1798. What happened on 1798? Well, on February 15, 1798, when French troops entered Rome, and their commander, General Berthier, deposed Pope Pius VI, putting an end to God's people's persecution and giving some relief to preach the gospel and openly teach Bible truth. So those 1,260 days are finished that day. So now people can freely study the Bible. They can freely speak about Bible truth. But since there, there is no persecution, complacency sets in. And few men are called to preach the gospel. John Calvin, John Wycliffe, John Huss. And this is something that happens also to God's people. And I, we might understand it in our time. What happened right now that we don't face persecution? We don't see that the Bible study or the Bible truth is important or is as important as it should be. We should, we should take everything so lightly. Oh, somebody just wants to start another church. It's fine. Let him do it. Because somehow we don't face the same fears of persecution that other people fears in the past. What happened with the early Christians, with the apostles? Jesus told them, go ahead and preach to other cities. But they wanted to remain in Jerusalem. So how did God make them go? When the persecution started. And they had to migrate to other cities. And in that way, as soon as they were almost running away from persecution, that they started to preach. So it seems that it has to do with the human nature, that we had to be pushed very strong, so we are moved to do something. But not all of us. Some people are even ahead of us. But timeline time prophecy does not end there. It takes us as far as 1844, the last time or the last day on Bible prophecy. There are many prophecies that we see in the Bible, and they talk about times and times that we can also get them, get, uh, or get them chronological in a calendar. So the 1844 is the last prophecy of time. After that, there is no other. And what happened to that? Well, four years before, God called a man named William Miller. And this man was studying his, book, his Bible because he got trouble. Well, he was, let's say, a, 
a man on an army. And when he went into a battle, according to his belief, he should have lost that battle. But he won it. And after he won it, he started questioning about God. Like, how did I win that battle? I shouldn't have won it because my enemy is bigger than I am. Or they are more in numbers. So when he started reading the Bible, he got into a conclusion that Jesus was coming soon. So God called this man in a very special and strange word, let's say, let's say a mysterious way, that God called him. And he started preaching about Jesus coming. And then it's a big awakening happened. But when he started preaching, he started preaching about Jesus coming on 1843. And it didn't happen. So they went back to study and they found out that there was a little bit delayed, so it has to happen on, 18, on October the 23rd, 1844. And it didn't happen either. So why did, did Jesus didn't come? Let me read you a quote from Ellen White, and it's found on Early Readings, page 232, and she says, I saw that God was in the proclamation of the time in 1843. It was his design to arouse the people and bring them to a testing point where they should decide for or against the truth. What's happening here? Sometimes, my brothers, we go ahead and open the Bible and start reading something. And because we don't have the Holy Spirit with us or we haven't prayed, we start understanding the message in a different way. Somebody comes and tells us, no, that's not right, because what you're saying is this and this. It should be on this way. But we just, like, come into ourselves and sense they said, no, this is the way that you should go. And you believe that the, your point of view or your reasoning is correct. So somehow God lets you believe the lie that you have created. So something like that happened on 1844. People thought that Jesus was coming. And when they studied the prophecy, they believed that it was Jesus' prophecy, Jesus coming. But it wasn't about it. But somehow God allowed that situation to happen because he wanted to test them. His church was going to be rise again, and he needed people who actually trust God and trust God fully. Because what was going to happen after 1844, it was going to be decisive for who are going to stay in the church and who is not going to stay in the church. Something else Ellen White writes about it. She says, I saw people of God joyful in expectation, looking for the Lord, but God designed to prove them. His hand covered a mistake in the reckoning of the prophetic period. Those who were looking for the Lord did not discover this mistake. And the most learned men who opposed the time also failed to see it. God designed that his people should meet with a disappointment. We were, uh, we were having a Bible study the other day. We were talking about like, why did people in 1844 didn't realize that they had the information wrong? It seems that that is the answer. Somehow God allowed them 
to have that wrong because he wanted to test those people. Why? Because there was two, two sets of people at church. And as Ellen White said, there was a group of people who were anxiously waiting for Jesus' return. And I think if I ask today, how many of us actually want to Jesus to return today? Are we going to say amen or no? See, that's, that's the point that she's saying. But some others didn't want Jesus to return. Why? Because they weren't ready. So there was a fight and two reasonings. Some wanted to Jesus to return, but some didn't want to. Now, there are some people that understood that the, the, the date and timing was incorrect. And they start arguing and, and, and going back and forth, back and forth. And Jesus led them to be deceived because of their thoughts. Because God wanted to taste, taste, test them. And this is something that's also going to happen with us sometimes in the future. When God is going to test us. And that's what we call the shaking of the church. Are we going to believe that it's actually God leading this church? Because there is a lot, a, a lot of people from our church who are doing or, or making their own groups and saying, hey, don't go to that church because that church has become Babylon. And they come with a lot of twisted uh, doctrine from Ellen White that they just twisted and, and shaped it in such a way that it says what they believe that it says. But actually it's not. It's just a mutilated text from Ellen White. And they text the Bible and they call our pastors a lot of things and everything. So for us who are within the church, we are going to be shaken. And are we going to believe God? Are we going to believe the message that God has brought to this world through this church? Or are we going to leave the church? So on 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12, there is a little uh, story there, or, or, or like a kind of a prophecy, let's say. And Paul is talking about the day when the lawless one is coming. And he said, and we know that the lawless one is coming is the Antichrist. It's the guy who is going to imperson Jesus, who is going to make people believe that he's Jesus. And he's going to have the power to deceive people. But why is he going to have that power to deceive people? For one reason. Verse 10, it says, because they did not receive the love or the truth. It might be that we read the Bible. It might be that we study our quarters daily. But do we love that truth? Do we accept that truth? Do we live by that truth? Or we only read it and keep going or keep moving? So that's why they are deceived. And when they are deceived, also says that God will send them a strong delusions. And this is something that we need to understand within the Bible context. What the text is not saying is that God will deceive you. No. What God will do is he will tell his Holy Spirit, you know what? This guy, he wants to believe this, this lie. So don't touch his heart anymore. Let him believe what he wants to believe. And he 
will deceive himself. And this is the same principle we find in other texts on the Bible, which God just refrained. It will not let you, it will let you, uh, what we call is uh, reap what you sow. Because you want to believe that. So, so this is the, uh, <clears throat> the background. So people, there is a different truth being taught. Everything is upside down. It is what we call in history the dark ages because nobody has the real truth. It's few people who are only keeping the truth. So now, having that in mind, let's go and talk about the message of the first angel. And then we find that in Revelation 14, 6, and 7. And in Revelation 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, worship him, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the spring of water. Now let's study uh, these two texts. Let's talk about the first part. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Why? The angel fly in the midst of heaven, which means that the message are the heavenly origin. So it's God sending this message. It's not something that the church has made it up. It's not something that John decided to do. No, it's God sending this message. And not only the message of the first angel, the second and the third angel. The angel fly also means that the message are to be announced with the utmost velocity. In, in what regard? For example, let's study what Ezekiel talks about the angels. Ezekiel 1, 13, 14 says, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearances was like burning coal of fire and like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And, this, and read what verse 14 says, And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. In other words, how fast an angel moves, like a flash of lightning. Do you remember that time when, Daniel's on, uh, when Daniel, on chapter 9 of Dan the book of Daniel, he's praying because God has given him a vision, and Daniel even got sick because of that vision. He did not understand it. So Daniel coming to his knees, and he said, oh, God, this is the vision. I don't understand it. I don't know. And let me ask you, how long do you spend praying? 30 seconds? A minute? Five minutes? Half an hour? Let's say that we do 50 minutes. Let's say that we pray 50 minutes. So Daniel is praying, and when Daniel is praying, he's half the prayer. When the angel comes, in a verse, on chapter 9, verse 23, the angel says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you and give you the understanding of the vision. How long did the angel 
had to fly to get there. <laughs> now it is interesting because we believe that heaven is in it's on the Orient Nebula. But you know how far the Orient Nebula is from us? Any idea? It's 1,314 light years. So that means that if we want to travel there, get ready. It will take us 1,314 years to get there. But how long did it take the angel to come to answer Daniel's prayer? 21 days. He was just in half the prayer when the angel comes and answers him. And that's the good thing. So somehow what the, the angel or the message is saying here is that first of all, the message comes from heaven. And two, it has to go quickly out. It's not something that you're going to keep it to yourself and then, oh, I'm going to do it next week or next month. And I'm going to play a plan to talk about this message on the next year. No. Somehow what uh, God is telling us here is that this is an urgent message and needs our special attention. But what is part of the message here? He said that this angel is having the everlasting gospel. It's like if this angel is holding a scroll on his hand when he's flying through the midst of heaven. So apparently, there was something about the gospel that had been muted or modeled for some time before the events in Revelation 14 required this special heavenly intervention to set matters right. Especially, at this foretold time of the judgment. So, but what is the everlasting gospel? What are the truths that were not told or were changed? And one of the several ways of defining the everlasting gospel would be to ask three questions. One of them is, why did Jesus die? Do you know why did Jesus die? Second question, why did he come to earth? Do you know why did Jesus come to earth? And the third, what is the purpose or goal of the message? To understand it, let's, let's study three Bible texts that I have chosen. There are more, but I have chosen only three. The first one, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, it reads, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you receive and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for what? For our sins, according to the Scripture. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. So the gospel that Paul is talking about here is that he's telling and preaching people, hey, Christ died for your sins and for my sins. And those are the things that have to be restored. Why? Because there is so truth being changed or mixed or messed up. 
about why did Jesus come? When we see in the traditions, how do we see Jesus in Christmas? You see like a little baby, see? How do we see or how are we going to see Jesus in Easter? Oh, we're going to see a man hanging on a cross and we're going to feel sorry for him. Oh, no, poor man. What he has to do? But actually, the purpose of him dying for us is to pay something that we cannot pay. We know by Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is what? Death. We can pay the, our debt. We die, but after that, what? We have nothing left. That means that we disappear. So somebody has to pay that debt for us. And that was Jesus. Now, let's read about the second text. It's found in Acts 4.12. It says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What happened when other people believe? In, I don't know if you remember, but in the 1980s, between the 80s and 90s, when John Paul II was the Pope, he, in his ministry, he preached about Mary. And then he included these words to Jesus through Mary. In other words, if you wanted to go to Jesus, you had to go to Mary first. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. That's what the Bible says right there. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other denominations, when you baptize, you baptize in the name of somebody who passed away before. So that by your baptism, you bring salvation to that person. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So the everlasting gospel is also teaching that there is no salvation on anybody else but Jesus. And I want to say something, but I don't want you to get confused in this regard. We might believe that if we are members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we're going to be saved. No, that is not a guarantee. No, what it guarantees you is that you are studying and you're following the true Bible teaching. That's your, that's your guarantee. But it's not, the church doesn't have the power to save you. It's only Jesus. It's our belief in Jesus that he will give us the saving. Now let's, let's read the other one. Romans 3, 24 and 26. And it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is this text telling you? It's something that Martin Luther King discovered through his Bible study. First of all, 
that we are justified freely by God's grace. Do you remember that text on Romans 3.10? There is none righteousness. No, not one. So in other words, it's like, okay, so that means that we're doomed. We, we're not righteous. But we get the righteousness through grace and through the faith in Jesus. That's why the Bible doesn't contradict itself when it calls some of us, some of us just a righteousness. It's because we have accepted that by faith and by grace. And this is what the text says. Being justified freely by his grace. Through faith. Do you believe that Jesus forgives your sins? Yes, I do believe because I have faith. And also something that we need to like put our minds in order is when we talk about faith, faith, it has to do only with Jesus. But sometimes we confuse the word faith with hope. And we change them. No, those are two different things. Sometimes we say, oh, I have faith that it's going to be a good day at work. Has nothing to do with faith. I have hope that my work is going to be good today. Oh, that's the way they were talking. Because what does this word, uh, what does faith does say on Hebrews 11, 1? Is faith what? We don't remember? <laughs> Is faith the things, the what? Which? The things hoped for, and what else? The substance of the things hoped for, but what else? Something else? I'll read it right here. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What are we hoping for? For Jesus' return, exactly. What are the evidence of things that are not seen? Have you seen Jesus? No, but we have evidence that he exists, isn't it? The world's still alive. We're still alive. We receive blessings every day. And many times we pray, we pray to him and we ask for him. And what happened? Those things that we pray for, we receive them. So there is evidence that Jesus exists. That is faith. So we cannot talk about faith that is our work or it's that somebody else has done. No, that is hope. But we change the word all the time. So here... whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, the faith that we have on Jesus, that he is coming even though we don't see him. But also it says in 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of who? The one who has faith in Jesus. Who has faith in Jesus? All of us. So he justifies it. That is what justification by faith is. It's not justification by works. 
And this is something that it was being preached, studied, and still some people talk about justification by works. That you have to do works. No, those come as a gratitude because you are so grateful to God that God has given you forgiveness, that God is going to give you salvation, that God has redeemed you, that you do those works. But that doesn't mean that those works are going to save you. So that's why the everlasting gospel has to deal with all of this. There were many lies being taught as truth. Among those, salvation through the mother church, indulgences, justification by works, confessing and forgiveness through men or human priests. This is something that the Bible doesn't teach us. Oh, you come to a man and you confess your sin and he will forgive you. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's not part of the everlasting gospel. That's why that message came from heaven. It was to put matters right. In summary, the everlasting gospel is the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, let's continue. To preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So this message is not only for the Jewish people. It's not only for our church. It's for the whole world. To reach the whole world, you need global people. And that's what we are thankful for and grateful for. Why? Because our church is almost in every country that they allow us to open our church now. We're thankful for that. Now, why is this message has to be preached to the whole world? Because also Satan has his people doing the same thing. And we can read that in Revelation 16, 13, when it talks about that out of the dragon come three spirits as the form of frogs. And they come and talk to the kings of the earth. So as, as we provide Bible studies, there is also people from Satan providing people getting confused. So somehow this message is to counteract those God's enemies in the same way. But at the same time, it's like under, like, like in between lines, God is sending us also another message. Hey, do you remember what I told you on Mark 16, 5, 16? And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So even at that moment of time, God is telling you, hey, don't forget that you need to go out and preach. Do Bible studies. Bring people to the church. You may not be a good at Bible study. That's okay. But you can have a friend say, hey, I want you to come to church with me. Come. Come to church this Sabbath. I'll give you free dinner after that. You think people will not accept it? Of course they will. And they will come and say, you know what? I like your church. I like the message. That's how I came to this church. As I was telling John this morning, he was writing here. I came to this church by accident. My car broke down, so my co-worker was giving me a ride. And she said, you know, uh, 
do you mind if I stop by my mom's house? I need to grab my keys and also some stuff. And I said, yeah, why not? You're, you're driving. You're driving me home. Said, so we stopped. And when we stopped there, they were having a Bible study, a home Bible study led by the church. There was a group of people there. And she didn't know. I didn't know either. And, she, and her mother said, why don't you sit and study a little bit? She said, okay, fine. This is another group that might talk about Bible and everything, so I just sat. And as, as soon as the Bible study started, that message started kicking on my heart, strong. And I went, wow. And every word he's saying and every way the, the Bible study was being conducted, wow. I got like, this is a different message. This is not the same thing I heard before. And they say, do you want to come back tomorrow? And I said, well, I don't know because she's giving me a ride. My car is broken. He said, yeah, we can come tomorrow. And that's how in that week I accepted the message. And that's how I become a Seventh-day Adventist because of the power of the message. It's not us. It's the power of the message that comes from the Bible. So God is telling us even at this time of at this, this time, he's going to go out and preach. This message has to be preached to the whole earth. But how are we going to preach this message? And this is something interesting. With a loud voice. You know that when you get those two words, loud and voice, in the Greek, we find out that loud uses a, a word, megas. And voice uses the word phone. In Greek, if you put those together, what do that, how does that sound? <laughs> In other words, say that you have to preach this message, how? Loud. But also, it doesn't mean like we used to use a big megaphone and have all of these Neighbor listening because they have to listen to the message. No. It also saying somehow that there is no worth person. There is no political correctness. Sometimes we don't want to say something because we don't want to hurt that friend, their feelings. We just want to be like nice looking people. And we don't say or we don't call the truth that is supposed to be truth. There is no double speak. It has to be said regardless of the consequences. I think I, men I mentioned to you before, one day I was invited to a home by some of my Christian friends. They said, hey, we're going to have a Bible study at this home and I would like you to have, a, have this study with us. And you lead it. They fine. So I just went there, but I didn't have no idea about who these people were. So somehow in the middle of the study, uh, we had to go through the idols, worship and everything. And I told this family, there's many people now that worship the image of Jesus, the image of Mary, or Paul and Peter and blah, blah, blah. And God does not like that. And I saw the eyes of my friends wide open, like, wow, what is this? Like, and I go like, 
I didn't get it what they were trying to say. So I keep with the Bible study, and at the end we prayed. The family, very kind, didn't say anything. So after we prayed, we left, and as we were going back, they told me, why did you talk about this? I said, what do you mean, why? Because they're Catholic, and they have all of these, you see all of these things they have in the house. And I said, I'm sorry, but the Bible study talks about it, and I have to say it. If you could warn me, maybe I could have done something different, but I said it. And they said, okay, so now they're not going to accept that next week. I said, well, let's pray. Few months later, I went to that church. And as I was walking into that church, I have a lady coming with me. Hey, Brother Eduardo, how are you today? And I went like, I don't remember this lady because many times I used to work as a translator for many of the sharing programs. So I met a lot, hundreds of people that I, I never see with sometimes. But sometimes at the mall or sometimes at the bus, so I see people that they talk to me and they knew me my name, but I, don't, I didn't know them. And I went like, oh, maybe this is one of those ladies. She said, do you remember when you came to my home? And I said, no, I really don't remember. You know what? We baptized last week. And I go, wow. <laughs> but sometimes you believe that the words that you're going to say are going to hurt people. But actually, the words that you're going to say, you have to say it because it's God's word. It's not yours. It's God's truth. It's not yours. And this is sometimes the misunderstanding. I have also some friends from, uh, we became uh, compadres. <laughs> I became the godfather of his son. And one day his, uh, his wife asked me, said, why do you, the Christian, call us uh, harlots? Why do you always speak about harlots because they're Catholic? And I said, you know what, do you have a Bible? He said, yeah. So she brought her Bible. Maybe she never opened it, but it was like, I opened it and said, hey, you read here in Revelations? And he says, and this is the harlot, and, and, he, and I read him all. And I said, you know who's saying this? He said, no, it's God. So it's God who's saying it. It's not me. So it's God that's calling you this because of this and this. So it's not me. It's not the Christians. And this is something that we need to understand, that it's not personal. Sometimes when people do not accept you or rebuke or anything, don't take it personal because it's not you who are you rejecting. It's Jesus. So you just said the message. Call it the way it is. There is no soft in words. You have to call it the message as it is. Now, also part of the message is fear God and give glory to him. Now we're going to have this split in two. We're going to focus on the fear first. What does that fear mean in this context? So to understand this, uh, we, we can take a, an example. And let's read on Genesis 22, 12. So in this time, Abraham has been asked to sacrifice his only son the son that he has asked God and has given to him. So God called him and said, okay, you know, you need to go to the top of this mountain and sacrifice and offer me your son as a sacrifice. And what does Abraham say? He said, no, I'm going to go this week, next week, no. 
he does the way God says. He did not question anything. He just come, grab his son, grab his uh, uh, donkey, and grab everything, and he walks to where God is sending him. Three days he has to walk. And at the time when he gets there, he's about to commit the sacrifice. And at the moment that he's going to commit the sacrifice, then God speaks to him and he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, what? Fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So what does fear have to do with that? Does it mean that he feared that if God, he doesn't do it, God is going to kill him? No. It says what is Deuteronomy 13, 4. It says more clearly, you shall walk after the Lord, your God, and fear him, and keep his commandments, and what? Obey his voice. So in other words, what the message that the first angel is telling us is obey God. Fear him. Because there is a back story on the dark ages on which people were obeying other powers, but not God. So we needed to come back and actually fear, obey God totally. And that is what the message is saying. Fear God. It's not that we are afraid. It's that we are going to honor him that we are going to obey what he says that we need to do. And the other part is give glory to him. Now, this part of give glory to him is very complicated to do. And let me tell you why. Have you read Romans 3.23? What does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, fall short, what can we change it for? We lack a glory of God. So you cannot give something that you don't have. That's, so how can we give glory to God if we don't have glory? What is the text saying here? And this might be a little bit confusing, but don't dismay. Let us study here a little bit. First of all, the words used for glory is the word doxa. And that word doxa, we use it in doxology. Do you know what doxology is? I think in this church, well, I've never seen it at this church, in many of the American churches. I've seen it more in the Latin churches. When we're going to start the service, have you seen this church? And by the way, that's part of the one of the traditions of the seven-day church, how we organize the service. So here in Madison, when we organize the church, we sit everybody here right at the front. And we have one at a time go ahead at the platform. Back, back in my home, it's different. We have who's going to have the announcement, the song service, uh, the prayer, and 
and the uh, offerings come with the preacher. They all walk at the same time, and the preacher is in the middle. They all walk at the same time and then sit in the back, here in the pulpit. So when they sit in the back, when the preacher kneels, everybody kneels. And then the preacher has a silent prayer. And when he says amen, then all the members are, are participating with him. They stand up, and in front, there are two deacons, one on each side of the church, and they do this. And the whole church, at the same time that the preachers and everybody is standing, they all stand at the same time. And at the same time, led by the, by the preachers, we sing a song. In Spanish, we have this song, uh, Hymn 55. And we go, Adios el Padre Celestial, al Hijo nuestro Redentor, al Eterno Consolador, unidos todos alabar. Amen. And the whole congregation sings the same song at the same time. This is the doxology. But what is the doxology? It's also dignity, glory, praise, worship. So it's at this time when we all together worship God, we're giving him God glory. That is the translation of this hymn in English. To God the Heavenly Father, to the Son of our Redeemer, to the everlasting Comforter, united, let us all worship. Amen. That's what the song said. And we all sing along. And then everybody takes the part, uh, the part in the platform. So the scripture talks about the glory of God in many ways. And, and let us not get confused because something we cannot give. For example, in Exodus 24, from 15 to 17, when Moses sees the presence of God coming down to the top of the mountain like a, a cloud, he says that it looked like a consuming fire. The glory of God is like a consuming fire. We don't have that. We cannot give that to God. Also, on Psalms 19.1, what does Psalms 19.1 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. So the creation also talks about the glory of God. Now, Psalm 79.9, it says, Help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. So the works of redemption is also a glory of God. But to understand what God is saying, here, let's take a look at the conversation between Moses and God. And it's something that you might be familiar with it. Exodus 33, 18 to 19. And he said, Moses is up in the mountain, has been with God for some time, and Moses kind of bold, right? Okay, God, show me your glory. Imagine if you were talking to God, what would you ask for? And Moses is kind of bold. Show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. That is God's glory. That is what the text on Revelation 14, 7 is talking about the glory of God is all the goodness. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord, 
before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So in other words, it's the character. And this is something that, that's why I, I love many of the writings from Ellen White, and she says on Sons and Daughters of God, page 337, by beholding Christ, by talking of him, by beholding the loveliness of his character, we become changed. Changed from glory to glory. And what is glory? Character. And he become changed from character to character Thus, we see that there is a work of purification that goes on by beholding Jesus. So what happens every time that we are beholding Christ. Have you ever seen just take any part on the Bible and the New Testament when it talks about what Jesus is doing and put yourself ne next to Jesus and just watch him doing and say the words that he's saying? How is that going to change your life? Imagine if you are going to Samaria, and Jesus is thirsty, and he sits by the well, and you're next there to Jesus, and you are a good Jewish. You know the, the law, and you know that you don't, cannot mingle with other people who are not Jewish, especially the Samaritan, because they're the enemies. And then somebody comes, a, a lady that has had many husbands, and talks to Jesus. What would you say if you were a Jewish next to Jesus? What your expectations were? Oh, you shouldn't be talking to that woman in the first place. But then after the conversation takes place and develops and you see the interest of Jesus and that woman and then how he transformed that woman into a follower of Jesus and a preacher, what your thoughts are going to be now? are going to be changed, right? And now when you talk to other people who may not be the same as you or don't look like you, you're going to be transformed. Transformed glory to glory, character to character. Do you remember the text, 2 Corinthians 3.18? But we all, with unveiled face, beholding us in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we can be transformed. And when our character, it looks like Jesus, then we are giving glory to God. Because when people talk to us, they don't see Eduardo. They don't see John Doe, Jane Doe. They see Jesus. And that's how you give glory to God. That your life speaks of him, that your works speaks of him, that your testimony speaks of God. And this is how you give glory to God. So we give glory to God when our character speaks of him. Now we understand with the fear of God as we obey him and give glory to him is that when we transform or we transform in character like Jesus. Now, for the hour of his judgment has come. Most people believe 
that this is an event or it's an hour and he's going to judge everything. No, actually the judgment process is, is, uh, the judgment is a process. And we can find it in different uh, texts of the Bible. In Revelations, on Revelation 14, 6 to 7, and Revelation 24 to 6, and Revelation 20, 13 to 15. And these are the three different, different phases of the, of the judgment. The first is the pre-advent phase. And this started in 1844. Why did they start it in 1844? Do you remember? It's because according to the sanctuary service, when the high priest moved to the holy place, the most holy place, it was a day of judgment. And on that day, everyone has to confess or has to have confessed their sins previously because forgiveness is going to come or judgment is what's going to come after that. So it was on 1844 when Jesus moved from the, most, from the holy place to the most holy place, not in the early sanctuary, but in the heavenly sanctuary. So that's when the pre-advent judgment phase started. Now, any judgment that takes place prior to the second coming cannot include the active input of people from the earth, but the records of the life are present. What records? All oh, the books. That's what the Bible says. The, uh, the ancient days sat and the books were open. We know that there is a book of life. And what is that on the book of life? What does it contain? It should contain our names. But there is also the book of the memories of which it record everything that we have done, seen, or said, or even the thoughts that we have is written in those memories. And this clearly and exhaustively shows the love and justice of God and also that of his people and the malignity of Satan and his rebellious followers. But none of these later parties are present in the courtroom to join in the review of the records. So the pre advent phase of the judgment makes sense. Why? Because when Christ returns, his rewards is with him. What happens when Jesus comes? If we have accepted Jesus, he has forgiven us, what's going to happen with us? We're going to go to heaven. But what happens if we haven't, we haven't accepted Jesus? We're going to stay here and we're going to die. That's going to be our first death. So somehow a, a judgment passed because the reward was gone with Jesus. Now, the second part comes, which is the millennium phase. It won't happen on the millennium phase. When we read uh, Revelation 24 and 6, and it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Who? Those who were saved. But what judgment are they going to judge if they were already executed? Let's say part of the judgment has already been executed. No, what they're going to come is now they're going to read the same books and they're going to ask, oh, why did Brother Eduardo is not here today? I thought he was going to be saved. He was preaching at church. And then God will show my record. Say, hey, this is all the opportunities that he has to repent, confess his sin. This is all the time that heaven approached him and tried to reach out to him, but he closed his heart. So he 
is not with us. And they will say, oh, God, you are righteous. You are a fair God. So we are going to, uh, there is a word in Spanish, but I didn't find it in English, but it's what we're going to do at that moment is that we are going to confirm that God is righteous. Because at the whole universe, if God is on trial, not Satan, it's God. Because they believe that it's, uh, Satan has convinced many angels and many people that it's God the problem, but it's not God the problem. It's Satan. So somehow the trial has to come back to the, or the, or the payment or for sin has to come back to the who originated the sin. So in the millennium, it's not that we're going to be in heaven having vacation, oh, walking to the Jerusalem gold city and, and eat of the tree of life and everything. No. We're going to be there opening the books and see why this and that and people were not saved. And we will confirm and say, God, your judgment is right. I agree with you. You are a rightful God. And then the post-millennial phase. What's going to happen in the post-millennial phase? So in the, post, uh, in the post-millennial phase on Revelation 20, 13, 15, it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the dead hated delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged or sentenced to each one according to his work. And this is going to be the executive part of the trial. In our, in our trial system, we understand that it's going, to time, it's going to be the time where we go to jail. Because now the sentence has passed, now it's time for that sentence to take effect. But, but, but this time, we're not going to go to jail. What happened is, they, is, is in that moment only that the hell is going to open. It says, then death and haze were cast into the lake of fire. So this is going to be only one time. And this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So those people who never or did not accept Jesus or did not accept God will die forever. And that's the part of the judgment. So that's why this message of the angel is fear God and give glory because the hour of the judgment has come. So whether we like it or not, we're going to be judged. We're going to be present. So this is going to be the final part of the judgment. Now, and the message keeps saying, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the spring of water. One more time, our friends. Heaven has to set matters right. In this time, God is reminding us to worship Him, the Creator. He is the only one who deserves worshiping. Uh, Psalm 95, 6 says, All come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And what does Exodus 20, 11 says? For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. 
and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So somehow, heaven knows too that at this time, people will not be worshiping the real creator. How many theories about creation has you studied through your life? The big band is more like the most successful one now. Now people forgot about Darwin some, for some time. Evolution. But now there's popping another, uh, popping another story or theories about dinosaurs. I don't know if you see a lot of, in, the, in, in the social media popping a lot of things about dinosaurs and everything. So somehow the people are being bombarded that there is no such a God. There is just evolution and everything just pop out of nothing. I don't know how they can explain that a butterfly has so many beautiful colors. The designer, just one butterfly. Now let's talk about the bees and the work they do for humanity. Did they just come out of nowhere and decided to do that? No. Somebody has to come and do the design and made them that perfect size. What about you? Have you ever considered how complicated your, one, your eyes is? Did I come out of nothing because of revolution? Oh, I just decided I want to see it, and I came up. See? No. So somehow, the message also is telling us that we need to worship the real creator. How do we worship the real creator? Today is on the fourth commandment. Keep, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall work and do all your work because the seventh, what? Is the Lord's. And then he's saying in the, in the verse 11, in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Actually, it's the same words that we see there in Revelation 14, 7, isn't it? Same words. So my brothers and sisters, we also worship the real God on Sabbath. Sabbath is a day to remember that he is our creator, that God is the creator of everything or everyone. So the message of the first angel is also a reminder of true worship. Now, we're coming now to the final part of the message. Why is this message important? Why is this message important? Let me read uh, this text from Ellen White. I tried to chop it up a little bit, but no, it's impossible. It is, has to be read, all of, all of it. He says, God is testing his people. Are we God people? Yeah, God is testing us to see who will be loyal to the principle of his truth. Our work is to proclaim to the world the first, second, and third angel's message. In the discharge of our duty, we are neither to despise nor fear our enemies. In other words, we need to go out and preach this message. We're not going to despise them, the, our enemies and say, hey, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. No, we need just to 
take the message. We're not going to fear also the enemy. Oh, I'm afraid that if I tell them this, then I'm, I'm going to be put to death. No, you don't fear about it. The true Sabbath is to be the sign that distinguishes those who serve God from those who serve him not. Let those who have become sleepy and indifferent awake. We are called to be holy, and we should carefully avoid giving the impression that it is of a little consequence whether or not we retain the peculiar features of our faith. Sometimes we believe that our faith is not that a big deal. Oh, if I just keep the Sabbath one day and the other day I don't, it won't make a difference. No. It says, we uh, should be carefully avoid giving the impression that it is of a little consequences whether or not we retain the peculiar features of our faith. Upon us rests the solemn obligation of taking a more decided stand for truth and righteousness than we have taken in the past. The line of demarcation between those who keep the commandments of God and those who do not is to be revealed with unmistakable clearness. We are consciously to honor God, diligently using every means of keeping in covenant relationship with Him that we may receive His blessings, the blessings so essential for a people who are to be so severely trialed to give the impression that our faith, our religion, is not dominating power in our lives, is greatly to dishonor God. So it is important. The message is important. Now you may ask, why no other religion denomination is preaching about it? And then we find a word, compromise. Why compromise? Because it's only in these two texts, in two texts of the Bible that we started this morning, there is so much truth that makes it impossible to have double speak. Because you cannot talk about worshiping God and doing something different. See? Because the people who listen in, you will go like, so what do we do with this? I remember like my, <clears throat> my friend's wife when he, when I asked her about your, her church, and I told her, have you asked your priest about this and this and this? And he said, oh yeah, I asked him a couple of times, but he says, no, oh, don't, let's not talk about it. Just do what I told you to do. That's it. And this is what happened. <clears throat> there is compromise in many denominations because they just want to accept what is convenient for them. Just a little message, a little thing, and nothing else. So we need to be careful with that. Now, why are these messages so important? Because these messages are like warning and are setting things straight. God is not talking in shades of grays. He's talking in black or white. In other words, he's saying, this is what you have to do, period. He doesn't want us to be like speculating or thinking that God wanted to say something different. No, it's God. This morning, in the Sabbath school lesson, I believe you all went through the same uh, text, Second Chronicles 2.20, when Josaphat has been fighting Moabites and Ammonites. 
And at the end of the text, it says, Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. So it's time for us today to believe what God is saying in the message of the first angel. There is no other way. And we will be established. In, in how can we be established? It means that the principles that founded the church will remain solid and strong. And it will not change because we have accepted God's message alone. That's what is important. And then believe the prophets and you shall prosper. I know sometimes people don't believe that Ellen White is a prophet. That's fine. But sometimes we quote other preachers. We quote uh, Graham. And we quote his words like coming from heaven. Well, Ellen White's words also come from heaven. And when she's giving you an advice on something, pay attention to it. It may not be as strong as God's message it is, but somehow he's helping you to get to heaven. So let's bow our head in and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your words. Father, help us to accept the message of the first angel. Help us, Father, to spread this message to everyone who comes near to us because the hour of your coming is close. We know the days are being shortened because there is too much, too much evil in this world. We know that those times that were prophesied are being fulfilled at this time, Father. We may now feel persecution at this moment because maybe the time hasn't come yet. But we ask you, Father, that when that time comes, that we are loyal to you, Father that we are faithful to you, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can help us to overcome and remain strong, not because of us, Father, it's because of you, because we want to fear you and give you glory. Bless those who are at, the, at their homes also listening to this message. Touch their heart and help them speak to their families, to their friends and neighbors. So that when Jesus comes, we all can go to heaven, Father. Amen. Amen. So we're going to...